All right, and as the kids are going out, I just want to tell you a little bit about um, TNT training. Um, some of the things that, that happen, there, there are really three aspects to the training. There are demonstration, expositions. And so, in other words, the, the, the trainers will come and will look at a passage of Scripture and will exposit it like we hope that the, the people do then as the pastors, they go to, to their homes or as they go to their, their churches and that, that's called the demonstration. A second leg of what they do is called a dig session, where we're teaching these pastors Bible study skills on a real simplistic level, um, trying to help them understand just the asking questions, what's important about that, and how your framework impacts your text, and how your text should be impacting your framework, and how you need to say what God says, but don't go beyond what God says, and don't fall short of what God says, and different tools that they have. We talk about that. And then thirdly, they have do sessions where the, the trainees have an opportunity. They're, they're given texts and months ahead of time, six months ahead of time. And they're given those texts and they need to come forth in front of everybody and explain how they would preach that passage in five minutes. So we, we try to tell them, OK, here's here's the plan. When you're looking to preach, do five things. Uh, take the text and after you've read it and prayed, then, then tell what the context of that text is, right? what comes before, what comes after, how does that fit in the narrative of the Bible. Tell the big idea of the text. So kind of what, what is the idea that God is trying to communicate here? Thirdly, figure out the structure and communicate the structure. Like where does it naturally break down or an outline, how, how it would break down. Fourthly, we say point to Jesus, point to Christ, show how the gospel works into this. And finally, fifthly, apply it. And um, so we try to model that in the expositions that are done and we try to teach these people that. And so what, what happens is they give their talk and then people respond to that in terms of how it touched their heart, ways to improve um, on what they did. And so that's a that's a real interactive uh, kind of time of, of training. Um, but always what, what takes place is they always focus their time upon a, a particular book of the Bible. So Jonah is really the one that they start on. Um, that's why years ago I preached the book of Jonah before I went and did some training with leadership resources. Jonah and their second session is in Second Timothy. And their third session, which was the, this was the third session with these men, they're in the book of Genesis particularly the first half of the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11. And so for three and a half days, um, we started uh, with a demonstration in Genesis chapter 1. And then some of these men were given passages in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and um, chapter 6, I think, was one, chapter 9. And they're just given that passage. So the whole time, mostly we were in the book of Genesis and um, just always looking just to to feed three and a half days there. In the, and it is really good for my soul as well. And for for the time together, also, they, they tend to begin with a demonstration, right, to kind of set the tone for the week, and then they end with a demonstration. And Nate Irwin did an uh, exposition of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 4, talking about the seven days of creation. And then I was assigned to preach Genesis chapters 4 through 11. And what I want to do is just deliver the message that I wrote there while I was uh, on the plane right over and while I was there, just want to deliver that message to give you a flavor of, of what, what took place. Um, this is a new message. I haven't, haven't given this to you all. Preached many times on Genesis 1 through 3, but have preached very little on 4 through 11. And so I want to do that. It is a difficult task because there are 219 verses in my text. It would take us 30 minutes to read. We'd be over time if I read everything today. 
Um, so it is a challenge. We will deal with things on a, a surface level, um, but it will be helpful for us. What's interesting about this text when you look at Genesis chapter 4 is the time frame that it covers. Um, if you do some calculating, if you calculate some of the genealogies, you see that this text from Genesis 4 to 11 covers 2,000 years of time. Uh, to put that in perspective, Genesis 1 through 11 covers as much time as the rest of the Bible covers. From Genesis 12 all the way through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way up to the birth of Christ and after Christ, there's about 2,000 years. Because Genesis 12 starts with the story of Abraham, then it goes to Christ about 2,000 years later, then spills over to the early church. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis deal with 2,000 years of history of men. And that's also the time of the whole rest of the Bible. And we just get a glimpse of just a couple stories. We see Cain and Abel in chapter 4. We get the glimpse of Noah and the destruction of the world. We get a glimpse of what took place in the land of Shinar in chapter 11. And the genealogies of 5, 10, and 11 just give us a time reference about Genesis 1 through 11 to get these 2,000 years. And other than those few stories, we know very little of what took place in the history of those 2,000 years. But the good news is this is that God has told us everything that we need to know that took place during those years because Scripture is sufficient. And here's the main point of those 2,000 years of history from Genesis 1 through 11. This world is a mess. That's what the whole point of these chapters tell us. We see um, death coming in these chapters. We see destruction coming in these chapters. We see disobedience in these chapters. Death comes in chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 6 through 9, we see destruction coming. We see disobedience in, in chapter 11. And that's the point that God wants us to know about the state of the world, the first several thousand years of the world. The world is a, is a mess. And we have only ourselves to blame. Uh, one man wrote, G.K. Chesterton said, What's wrong with the world today? He said, I am. God is not to blame for the mess that we have. God created Adam and Eve in a placed them in a, a sinless paradise, and yet they rebelled against their Creator. Eve took the fruit and ate. She gave it to Adam, and he ate. And as a result, they're driven out of the garden and, and faced various curses. Eve faced the pain of childbirth, the frustration in marriage. Adam faced the toil of the land by the sweat of the brow he'd eat. The Lord had said, in the day that you eat of it, you surely will die. And in that day, Adam began to die and the whole of creation faced and experienced death. In fact, that's my first point in chapters 4 and 5. Death. Come here. Death. We see it in chapter 4, verse 1. Genesis chapter 4. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. The first two sons enter the scene. Cain was the oldest, verse 1. Abel was the younger. Abel was a, a shepherd, and Cain was a, a tiller of the ground. And we read in verse 3, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the first of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat. Now, somehow, in some way, Cain and Abel knew that they should give to the Lord. Maybe Adam and Eve told them. Maybe the Lord told him them. 
himself. We don't know, but they, they gave what they had. Being a shepherd, Abel brought from the first things of his flock, maybe a young sheep or young goat. We don't know. And being a farmer, Cain also brought from the fruit of his labor. He brought some plants. And in chapter 4, or in verse 4, the last part of it, we see the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. The question comes up, why did God regard Abel's and not Cain's? There's some speculation on this. I think Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 brings it to light. Where it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Abel was righteous and trusted in the Lord. He brought his offering to God. But Cain was not accepted. And some will say that Cain's error was his offering. He brought plants, whereas Abel brought an animal, right? God wants the blood. Well, there might be some to that. However, the Scriptures say later that there are grain offerings. You read in Leviticus chapter 2, grain offerings are, are legitimate offerings. I, I think the issue has more to do with what Hebrews 11 speaks about, that Abel was righteous and had faith and Cain didn't. Because you think about how the Scriptures view sacrifices. God wants the heart in the sacrifice. Hebrew, Hosea 6.6, 6, I delight in steadfast love rather than sacrifice in the knowledge of God rather than offerings. And I would say Cain's heart was the problem. Abel had faith. Cain had a hard heart. We see that in the last half of verse 5. Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. If Cain's heart had been right, he would have repented. He would have acknowledged and confessed his sin, but that was not the case. Instead, he became angry. And by God's mercy, we see God showing grace to, to Cain to tell him what's in the forecast of his life and giving an opportunity to repent. Verse 6 says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin was desiring to conquer Cain and God told Cain to defeat that sin. And the war was on between Cain and the sin that was desiring him. And who won? Sin won out. As a result, we read in verse 8 that Cain told Abel his brother and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Sad verse. You know, we read in the Bible about Jesus speaking about the hard path that disciples would face. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and will cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name. And we read this verse with horror that a brother will deliver up a brother to death. Can it be just because of faith in Christ? And yet this has always been the case. From the very first two children, Cain was of the evil one and slew his brother, as 1 John 3.12 says. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Instead of submitting his ways to the Lord and repenting, Cain rebelled against the Lord and killed his brother. Now, to me, I find that very surprising. Cain and Abel were one generation removed from paradise, one generation removed from a sinless world. And yet, only a few years later, Cain killed his brother. And what Cain began, Cain feared. Look at verse 14, the second half. Cain says that I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. That was the state of the world. It was a mess. 
Adam and Eve lived in harmony in the garden, but now Cain and others lived in fear of the threat of murder was in the land. Death had come to earth, and what Adam, what Abel experienced was the expectation of all. In fact, that is the point of Genesis chapter 5, is death. We see the genealogy from Adam in verse 1 down to Noah in verse 32. And three words are repeated time and time and time again in this genealogy. And they come right there in the end of verse 5. So all the days Adam lived were 930 years. And what are the next three words? And he died. And then Seth, verse 8. His years were 912 years. What are the three words? The same together. And he died. Enosh, verse 11. Were 905 years. And he died. Kenan, verse 14, all of his days were 910 years. Let's say it together. And he died. Mahaliel was 895 years, verse 17. And he died. Verse 18. Jared, verse 20, was 962 years. And he died. Only Enoch was the exception. He walked with God. Verse 24 says he was not because God took him. So somehow Enoch escaped this curse of death. But everyone else died. Methuselah, verse 27, 969 years, and he died. Lamech, verse 31, 777 years, and he died. It's the whole point. Death has come into this world. It's the reality of the fall. And the day that you eat of it, you will die. And death is spread to the world. The world's a mess. It's filled with death. Secondly, it's destruction. We see that in the story of Noah, chapters 6 through 9. It tells the story of Noah and the flood when God destroyed the world. And verse 5 of chapter 6 tells the reason for this destruction. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When God looked upon on the earth, He saw the breadth of man's sin and the wickedness on the earth. It says there, he saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. There was great wickedness on the earth. And then as he plumbed the depth into each of our souls, he saw how deep the sin was. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart, only evil continued. That means that the, the intent of your thoughts, not just your thoughts, it was, it was the intent of the thoughts. It was not just some intent, it was every intent. The thoughts of the heart was not just evil, but only evil. And not just evil sometimes, but only evil continually. That's what God looked upon His creation that He said on the sixth day when He created the world. That it was very good. And it was very good. It turned to be very bad. And we see in verse 6 what God said. He said, The Lord was sorry that He made man on the earth and He grieved in His heart. And then He resolved, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land and from man to animals and creeping things and the birds of the sky. What began as a sinless paradise had degenerated into a cesspool of wickedness. When the creation was completed in the garden, God saw everything that was very good. And now we can hear... See, things are very bad. We can almost hear in the creation when things are very good. We hear, hear God singing for joy. Look at this good creation, this very good creation I made. 
And we can almost hear him now cry because he was sorry that he made the earth. It was only Noah found grace in God's sight. Verse 8, Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord, but the rest were wicked. One righteous man in the whole earth. We read in verse 11 of how corrupt the earth was in the sight of God, filled with violence. Verse 12, God looked on the earth and behold, it's corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said, I'm going to destroy this creation like a potter whose vessel is spoiled in his hands. The Lord set his heart to make it into another vessel. And we see that in verse 13. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself then an ark of gopher wood and you shall make it with rooms and shall cover it inside and and with pitch. And he goes on to describe how big it should be. It should be 450 feet long and 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall. 500 train cars. In other words, a train five miles long is how big this ark is, was. Enough surely to have all the animals of the earth in it. And then there's a day when the rain would break out. Verse 13. Now try to picture the scene with me. This, this ark that was built was there dry docked on the land. Eight people in it. And here's what we read. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three of the wives of the sons with them entered the ark. Eight people in the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds, all the animals. God brought them and they went into the ark to Noah two by twos of all flesh, which is on the breath of life. And those that enter, male and female, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind them. In verse 17, Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased, and this didoct boat was lifted up so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated upon the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under heaven were covered. I know sometimes it rains here in Rockford, but it never rains like it rained that day. Forty days, forty nights, filling the earth, lifting the ark off the ground. I just picture this mass of humanity heading for the hills like, like you head for the hills in a tsunami. Here it comes, and they're seeking dry land. But as it says there in verse 19, that the water prevailed all above the highest mountains. So you got people going up to the top of the mountains looking, looking for help, and the water just keeps going up and up and up and up and up and over. And soon it was futile, and millions of people were drowned. The world that God created was utterly destroyed. You ever been where flooding comes? I remember when uh, Katrina came upon the southern portion of our country and um, several of us in the church went down to help with some uh, restoration efforts. It was amazing the devastation that had come. I talked to some people where, where I was helping to take down some of the moldy drywall and all their stuff was out in their driveway and in their lawns and everywhere just trying to dry and was talking with them and they because the, the hurricane came and there was basically a storm surge. It, it went over the levees and then surged 
And then on the backside of the, the hurricane, it kind of came back. So just within a matter of a few hours, this water went out and back. And they talked about getting on their ladders and climbing on the roof of their houses because the water was coming. And they're just, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. And they're up there and the, the water kept coming up. And they said it, it got to roofs in some place and then, then came down. Um, but it was, they were there. It was interesting how much the devastation. That was just a few hours. And, and boats were there in the... Um, in the neighborhoods and cars were turned up down, fences knocked over, trash and debris all around. It was a mess. And that was only a few hours. Just think about the mess that would have been like after the whole earth was underwater for 150 days. As verse 24 says, right? everything was, was just totally, totally destroyed. But as much as was destroyed, not a lot changed. Because we read in chapter 8, verse 21, God says, after smelling this aroma, the altar that Noah had built, He says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing that was done. Chapter 8, verse 21 is an echo of chapter 6, verse 5, in that man's heart was not changed in this destruction. As it says, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. God may have changed the surface of the earth. Right? I think this is where the mountains came about also. Right? The, the floods came and changed everything. Maybe, maybe continents moved in the, under the weight of this water. I'm, I'm not sure. But, but here it is. What didn't change is man's heart. People were still wicked. And, and the only reason why we're still around today some 4,000 years after the flood. 4,000 years, yeah, close to that, after the flood. is because of God's kindness. In chapter 9, we read the covenant that God made with Noah. Chapter 9, verse 8. Behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth, of all the ones that come of the ark, even beasts of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off from the water of the flood, neither shall be again be a flood to destroy the earth. And then he goes on to describe about the rainbow in the sky is a fulfillment of the promise that God will never again flood the earth. Now, there will be a day when he burns the earth. Second Peter tells about that when he comes in judgment. But the only reason he's not flooded the earth again is because of His kindness. In fact, God's kindness is the only thing that kept Noah alive. He too was a sinner. You can read about in chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, how he got into a drunken stupor. Even the righteous man upon the earth is revealed here to be a sinner. Like all of us. We are sinners. Death has come because of sin. Chapters 4 and 5. Destruction has come because of sin. Chapter 6 through 9. And finally, we see an example of disobedience in chapter 11. We see the point, the world united. The whole earth used the same language and used the same words. They decided to, to build this building of human achievement. And, and it must have been great, this, this tower that they had decided to build. You can read about that in verse 4. Come, let us build for ourselves this tower that's going to reach up into heaven. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. In verse 5, the Lord came down and saw this tower which the men built. In verse 6, 
The Lord said, right, they're one people. They have the same language. This they begun to do. Now, nothing they purpose to do will be impossible for them. It must have been a, a great tower that these men had begun to build. But the problem was these builders had forgotten their designer and these creatures had forgotten their creator. Everything Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 was true of these people, that they didn't acknowledge God any longer, but they pursued their own lusts. And so down comes the Lord. He confuses their language, making the world even a bigger mess. Come, Verse 7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad over, there, over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. They were told time and time and time again, Adam and Eve were told, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And after the ark, Noah was told, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But what they do? They, they wanted to stay in one place. God, God wanted men to rule the earth. But they just stayed in one place and I think thereby brought, showed their, their disobedience. And you see the effects of that. Like I told you about the story of Stephen in, in India about going to these people. He doesn't know their language. So many different tribal languages and all these different villages with very little to unify them. We see that India is a mess all these different languages around. But that's what all that we know of the world for 2,000 years. We know death, destruction, and disobedience. And, and you get to the end of, of Genesis chapter 11, at the end of 2,000 years of history, and you just say, well, where's their hope? It seems hopeless. I mean, you have ungodly people speaking lots of different languages, covering over the world. They're not seeking God. And you say, what's, what's the point? Well, the ray of hope comes in chapter 12. We see God choosing Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and giving him a covenant. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house and to the land I will show you. Chapter 12, verse 2. I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you. And the one who causes, who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's as if God, the beginning of creation, in this telling us a story, makes a beeline to, to Abraham and then slows down. You realize there's more spoken about Abraham in chapter 12 through 23 when he dies. More chapters about him than about all the history that was before him. Making a beeline to Abraham and the promise to bless him and then he starts working out that, that promise. The rest of the Bible unfolds a story about how in you, chapter 12, verse 3, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It goes from Abraham, the blessing goes to Isaac, the blessing goes to Jacob, the blessing goes to Judah, the blessing then went to David, and the son of David was Jesus Christ. And through Christ, now the gospel has gone to the world. In fact, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. This is where we'll, we'll end this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8 speaks about how the Gospel is found right there in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. It says a Scripture, Galatians 3, verse 8, the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer 
and verse 14 speaks about how the promises, the blessing to Abraham come to us, come to the Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and there God gave hope. Right there at the, the Abrahamic promise of just, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham wasn't necessarily a righteous man. He came from an idol-making family. And God just chose him, said, I'm going to bring you into this land. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. If you're experiencing blessings today in Jesus, it's only because God chose Abraham. And God chose to be gracious to Abraham. And when he chose Abraham, he had the whole world in mind. In you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And some of those nations include India, where we were. Some of those nations include America. And when you read then in Revelation, at the end of time, it speaks about how Jesus purchased with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. See, apart from God's grace to Abraham, apart from God's grace to us through Jesus Christ, our world will be a mess. But praise be to God, He's chosen Abraham and brought salvation through Christ. And so believe in Him. Trust in Him. He's the only way that the world will escape the mess that it found itself in. The only way this world will find itself out of its mess is by believing in Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your revelation to us that just in the first 11 chapters of the Bible we see just You creating a great creation and men destroying it. Bring about death. Bring about Your wrath upon the, the earth because of their sin. Seeing them in disobedience, always shaking their fist at You, wanting to be something great in themselves rather than realizing that You are the great one. Father, thank You for what You did in Abraham and how that just sets the stage for the rest of the Bible. God, even Joseph's brothers who tried to, try to be against him, God, what they meant for evil, You meant for good. And the evil that was, was, came upon Jesus Christ when people killed Him, God, You meant that for good. And we thank You for the good that You have brought in Christ and would pray God, You might help us to ever live for Him and trust Him. God, seeing that He's the only solution to the, the mess that the world is in, may we point others to Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.